Hello, and welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. It is me, the titular Eddie Hurst. And no, I will not make a joke about how the word titular sounds a little bit funny. I'm better than that. And quite frankly, so are you. Here we are, chapter two of book two, what we saw from the ruined house. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. Thanks very much to Tom Burgess for being in it. And this chapter, I'm very excited to introduce the guests that we have coming on for a little chat. It is, as if you've read the title of the of the episode, you know, Rex Factor. They are, uh, it's two guys, it's Graham and Ali. They do a podcast where they talk about uh, monarchs of British history. Now, am I a huge monarch fan? Absolutely not. But are they a good way to learn about the history of Britain through the lens of its rulers? You know, seeing how uh, individual foibles and personalities affect a whole country? Yeah. Also very excited to throw in the new word that I've learned, foibles. Foibles. Sort of personal uh, habits or idiosyncrasies maybe, maybe seen in the negative light. This is a sponsored post for the word foibles. And are those guys funny and, and charming in the way that they do it? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I got them on the show. So you'll hear them a little bit later on talking about how Queen Victoria and uh, King Edward would have dealt with a Martian invasion as it's on the on the tips of everyone's lips. Uh, the tips of the lips. Also, we'll have a little song about uh, a scullery. So uh, brace yourself for that. Uh, we're going to go back in. The curate and, of course, the narrator are trapped in a ruined house uh, un- un- under siege, in a way, from the Martians. So uh, let's see what they're up to. Please do like, share and subscribe it does really help other people find the podcast thank you so much for 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 joining me for the second series the first one had a great response and i look forward to hearing what you think of this one be sure to let me know on twitter at eddie hurst or instagram at the same facebook forward slash edy hurst or i mean even send me an email if you want uh, that that privacy it's uh, just my name at gmail.com anyway without further ado let's get into it chapter two what we saw from the ruined house After eating, we crept back to the scullery, and there I must have dozed again, for when presently I looked round I was alone. The thudding vibration continued with wearisome persistence. Wearisome? Wearisome? It's like wearisome, as if like, I think it's like being wary of something. Wearisome. Wearisome. I don't know if that's my accent, but I can... Guys, it's... It's wearisome. Wearisome. See, because it's not worrisome. You'd think it might be worrisome. It's not. It's not worrisome. It's wearisome. So, look, I just... I I hope that if you thought, oh, he sounded a bit uncomfy saying that, I, I did. You were right. I did. I whispered for the curate several times. The curate. The curate. Oi. And at last felt my way to the door of the kitchen. It was still daylight, and I perceived him across the room lying against the triangular hole that looked out upon the Martians. His shoulders were hunched, so that his head was hidden from me. I mean, just try and try and do that so you can hunch your shoulders that high that your, your head head's hidden from... Like, I'm not saying it's not possible, but... Man, that's trick. What is it? Like, he's leaning forward? I can't get an idea of that. It's tough. That's my... That's going to be my the TikTok challenge for this episode, if, if we were on TikTok. That's... that's that makes me relevant with kids now, right? Right? Over by the dishes and the dryer, laundry, the plug part of 
noises almost like those in an engine shed and the place rocked with that beating thud through the aperture in the wall i could see the top of a tree touched with gold and the warm blue of a tranquil evening sky for a minute or so i remained watching the curate and then i advanced crouching and stepping with extreme care amid the broken crockery that littered the floor I mean, the least the curate could have done is tidy up a little bit. I mean, it'd be quiet about it, but what else is he doing? Sobbing and washing his brain? I touched the curate's leg, and he started so violently that a mass of plaster went sliding down outside and fell with a loud impact. I gripped his arm, fearing he might cry out, and for a long time we crouched motionless. Then I turned to see how much of our rampart remained. Surf's up, everybody. Ah, hang loose. I'm just chilling at the beach. I figured out that life's too short to be worrying about who you are, grievances, so I've decided to take out my pension early and head and catch some waves. Rampart, that's what we're looking at here. Rampart could be one of two things. It's either a 2011 film starring Woody Harrelson or a defensive wall. I'm gonna guess, maybe it's the film that's fallen down. <laughs> Just a little joke there from me. The explaining lad. It is, of course, probably the defensive, the defensive wall. Whoa, I'm just gonna do that thing where you go under the waves. The detachment of the plaster had left a vertical slit open in the debris. And by raising myself cautiously across a beam, I was able to see out of this gap into what had been overnight a quiet suburban roadway. Vast, indeed, was the change that we beheld. The fifth cylinder must have fallen right into the midst of the house we had first visited. The building had vanished, completely smashed, pulverised, and dispersed by the blow. Uh, Wells is, uh, he's really getting his value out of that thesaurus he bought, isn't he, there? The cylinder lay now far beneath the original foundations, deep in a hole already vastly larger than the pit I had looked into in Woking. 
The earth all around it had splashed under the tremendous impact. Splashed is the only word. And lay in heaped piles that hid the masses of the adjacent houses. It had behaved exactly like mud under the violent blow of a hammer. What? Who, who's hitting mud with a hammer? Like, I mean, I can picture it, but... What? Our house had collapsed backward. The front portion, even on the ground floor, had been destroyed completely. By a chance, the kitchen and scullery had escaped, and stood buried now under soil and ruins, closed in by tons of earth on every side save towards the cylinder. Over that aspect, we hung now on the very edge of the great circular pit the Martians were engaged in making. The heavy beating sound was evidently just behind us, and ever and again a bright green vapour drove up like a veil across our peephole. I mean, a peephole strikes again, and it just doesn't, it doesn't not sound funny at any point, does it? Oh, the peephole! Don't look at the peephole! <laughs> the cylinder was already opened in the centre of the pit, and on the farther edge of the pit, amid the smashed and gravel-heaped shrubbery, one of the great fighting machines, deserted by its occupant, stood stiff and tall against the evening sky. Quick, now's your chance. Get over to it, press triangle, and you can steal it. At first, I scarcely noticed the pit and the cylinder, although it has been convenient to describe them first, on account of the extraordinary glittering mechanism I saw busy in the excavation, and on account of the strange creatures that were crawling slowly and painfully across the heaped mould near it. The mechanism it certainly was that held my attention first. Big shout out to Yoda for helping put that sentence order together there. It was one of those complicated fabrics that have since been called handling machines, and the study of which has already given such an enormous impetus to terrestrial invention. As it dawned upon me first, it presented a sort of metallic spider with five jointed agile legs, and with an extraordinary number of jointed levers, bars, and reaching and clutching tentacles about its body. Most of its arms were attracted, but with three long tentacles it was fishing out a number of rods, plates and bars which lined the covering and apparently strengthened the walls of the cylinder. These, as it extracted them, were lifted out and deposited upon a level surface of earth behind it. Its motion was so swift, complex and perfect that at first I did not see it as a machine, in spite of its metallic glitter. The fighting machines were coordinated and animated to an extraordinary pitch, but nothing compare with this. People who have never seen these structures, and have only the ill-imagined efforts of artists or the imperfect descriptions of such eyewitnesses as myself to go upon, scarcely realise that living quality. This is a great little trick by any writer or author, and if you want to do it too, if you want to describe something but can't be bothered to actually describe or write about it, just say, like, it was so complex or so unimaginable that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it justice describing it. It's, 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 it's the perfect cop-out. The perfect cop-out. I recall particularly the illustration of one of the first pamphlets to give a consecutive account of the war. The artist had evidently made a hasty study of one of the fighting machines, and there his knowledge ended. He presented them as tilted, stiff tripods, without either flexibility or subtlety, and with an altogether misleading monotony of effect. The pamphlet containing these renderings had a considerable vogue and I mention them here simply to warn the reader against the impressions that they may have created. 
They were no more like the Martians I saw in action than a Dutch doll is like to a human being. To my mind, the pamphlet would have been much better without them. I love this paragraph. It's great, isn't it? Because one, it implies to us as readers that obviously he's writing this in the past tense, so not to give any spoilers away that you can't get, he's, he's survived. He's survived to write this. But two, as the true narrator to himself, not only has he survived, he's also found ways to complain about other people who have survived getting things wrong. It's like, it is peak narrator that not only uh, is he writing his own account, which he thinks is the definitive one, he's even dedicated time in his own book to slam his rivals. That are made up. Like, Wells has just made them up. They're not real and yet he's wanted to dunk on him. At first, I say, the handling machine did not impress me as a machine, but as a crab-like creature with a glittering integument. Radical, man. Oh, just a quick one, guys. Integument. It means, like, the tough outer layer. So, like, a crab has a tough outer layer. Even our skin cancers that. That's integument. Okay, The controlling Martian, whose delicate tentacles actuated its movements, seeming to be simply the equivalent of the crab's cerebral portion. But then I perceived the resemblance of its grey-brown, shiny, leathery integument to that of the other sprawling bodies beyond, and the true nature of this dexterous workman dawned upon me. With that realisation, my interest shifted to those other creatures, the real Martians. Already I had a transient impression of these and the first nausea no longer obscured my observation. Moreover, I was concealed and motionless, and under no urgency of action. They were, I now saw, the most unearthly creatures it is possible to conceive. Oh right, so he can describe the most unearthly thing he could possibly conceive, but when it comes to the structures, like just just, just a, a machine, that's too much. Fine, 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 crack on. I'm not even bothered. They were huge round bodies, or rather heads, about four feet in diameter, each body having in front of it a face. This face had no nostrils. Indeed, the Martians do not seem to have had any sense of smell, but it had a pair of very large dark-coloured eyes, and just beneath this a kind of fleshy beak. In the back of this head or body, I scarcely know how to speak of it, was the single tight tympanic surface. Cowabunga! Radical! I just saw somebody take a real gnarly <laughs> Tympanic! It's a type of surface. It's drum-like. Our eardrums have a tympanic surface. That's what it means, baby. Okay, I'm gonna go hang 20. What? That's 10 more than 10. This guy's a maniac. Hey guys, I'm a maniac! since known to be anatomically an ear, though it must have been almost useless in our dense air. In a group round the mouth were 16 slender, almost whip-like tentacles, arranged in two bunches of eight each. These bunches have since been named rather aptly by that distinguished anatomist, Professor Howes, the hands. The hands! The hands! Here's an interesting little tidbit uh, here that Professor Howes was a real person. It was uh, Professor G.B. Howes, who uh, was was a was a famous biologist and illustrator around this time. Um, H.G. Wells was probably taught by him in some form because he was uh, he was colleagues and and personal friends with Thomas Huxley, who of course taught H.G. Wells biology at university. So 
just a just a little little sprinkling of, of, of factual factual stuff there. Still though, do you remember when he said hands as if that was like the big the big shocker? That's funny, wasn't it? Even as I saw these Martians for the first time, they seemed to be endeavouring to raise themselves on these hands. But of course, with the increased weight of terrestrial conditions, this was impossible. There is reason to suppose that on Mars, they may have progressed upon them with some facility. The internal anatomy, I may remark here, as dissection has since shown, was almost equally simple. The greater part of the structure was the brain, sending enormous nerves to the eyes, ear, and tactile tentacles. Beside this were the bulky lungs, into which the mouth opened, and the heart and its vessels. The pulmonary distress caused by the denser atmosphere and greater gravitational attraction was only too evident in the convulsive movements of the outer skin. And this was the sum of the Martian organs. Strange as it may seem to a human being, all the complex apparatus of digestion, which makes up the bulk of our bodies, did not exist in the Martians. They were heads merely heads. Entrails they had none. They did not eat, much less digest. But how do they poo? And eat and consume energy, I guess. Well, mainly the first one. Instead, they took the fresh, living blood of other creatures and injected it into their own veins. I have myself seen this being done, as I shall mention in its place. But, squeamish as I may seem, I cannot bring myself to describe what I could not endure, even to continue watching. Let it suffice to say, blood obtained from a still-living animal, in most cases from a human being, was run directly by means of a little pipette into the recipient canal. Okay, this is a special song dedicated to those, uh, giant horrible mosquitoes, or gross, just head vampires. I call it digesting their words. Entrails, they had none. They did not eat, much less digest. Instead, they took the fresh, living blood of other creatures and ingest. Injected it into their own veins. I have myself seen this being done, as I shall mention in its place, but squeamish as I may seem I can not bring myself to describe what I could not enjoy even to continue watching let it suffice to say blood obtained from a still Thursday night, it's cocktail night. Please tip your waitresses, uh, tip your tables, tip your tip your hats, tip your tip your coat, tip it. <laughs>
tip your car, blood, he's gone crazy, stop tipping stuff, he's, oh, yeah, tip, he's tipping away, tipping too much, somebody stop him, help, please! The bare idea of this is no doubt horribly repulsive to us. But at the same time, I think that we should remember how repulsive our carnivorous habits would seem to an intelligent rabbit. The physiological advantages of the practice of injection are undeniable, if one thinks of the tremendous waste of human time and energy occasioned by eating and the digestive process. Our bodies are half made up of glands and tubes and organs, occupied in turning heterogeneous food into blood. The digestive processes and their reaction upon the nervous system sap our strength and colour our minds. Men go happy or miserable as they have healthy or unhealthy livers, or sound gastric glands. But the Martians were lifted above all these organic fluctuations of mood and emotion. I mean, firstly, before we dive into this, a big shout out to uh, before when he, he mentions the rabbits. That's a lovely little, uh, little bring back to earth, the recurring theme that we see, of course, which is uh, comparing man's conquest to the effects that it has on animal uh, and secondly this is a peak scientist view in it that food's only for um food's only for energy i mean imagine taking the narrator to a restaurant and being like yeah mate this really expensive restaurant it's really fancy it's a, it's a pizza hut buffet you can have as much as you want and he turns around and he's like well, it's, a, it's a waste of time in it waste of time i'd rather be uh rather rather just injected into me veins all I'm, all I'm saying is I'm not inviting him to a, to a dinner party anytime soon. Their undeniable preference for men as their source of nourishment is partly explained by the nature of the remains of the victims they had brought with them as provisions from Mars. These creatures, to judge from the shriveled remains that have fallen into human hands, were bipeds with flimsy, silicious skeletons, almost like those of the silicious sponges. Doodorinos, so I took a little bit more of a wipeout than I was anticipating, so I'm just on a little trip to the hospital. But <laughs> don't worry about the old explaining ladster. So, uh, what have we got? Silicious. Ooh, silicious. Uh, that's a fun word to say. Uh, so, silicious, it's something that has silica in it, uh, which is a mineral. It's like a sort of mineral that you get. In, 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 in some living organisms and some stones and things like that. So it, 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 it's a type of, like, it's like a vitamin. Okay, see you later. And feeble musculature, standing about six feet high and having round, erect heads, and large eyes in flinty sockets. Two or three of these seemed to have been brought in each cylinder, and all were killed before Earth was reached. It was just as well for them, for the mere attempt to stand upright upon our planet would have broken every bone in their bodies. Yes, what a sweet mercy indeed. I'm sure they were really glad that they had all of the life sucked out of them, as opposed to being on a planet that they might have been okay on. Uh, of those options, definitely the, the former is the one that I would take too. Pop me in a cylinder. Give him a straw. Hey guys, um, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you on as uh, together as Rex Factor. Please, could you introduce yourselves as like um, in in first and even last name if you want? I mean, you know, I'll leave that up to you. I'm Graham Duke, which everybody always hears, and then Ali is Ali Hood. I'm often Ali. Uh, well, not even Ali. Alan Head, <laughs> Hood, uh, like Hood. Sure. 
Uh, that is that's right. That's your name. <laughs> that is my name. No. The disbelief uh, someone's got your name right. It's uh, it's a lot to take in. Wood. That was what I was going for. Plenty always got wood. Hang on. My name is Ali Hood. And it's wonderful to have you guys on. Thank you very much for coming on my very silly War of the Worlds based podcast. Um, like your your podcast is is an excellent look at monarchs of of England and Scotland and beyond. I, I thought, who better to ask about hypothetical questions of Martian invasions <laughs> compared to historic monarchs of the time than than you guys? Um, so within the book at this time. Um, there's sort of there's two monarchs it could potentially be. Uh, the first one is Queen Victoria, um, and the second one is uh, Edward the Seventh. Because um, whilst the book was written in 1897, it was it, it's set in like the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. It's not specific which year it is. So I wanted to ask you guys a bit about whether either of them ever planned to fight Martians. That's one for you, um, Graham. Uh, Alex, do you want to <laughs> cover this one, Alex? <laughs> Depends what you in, in uh, an alien. We definitely had uh, Harold was definitely preparing for a, a foreign invasion, wasn't he? Ten sixty six. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They must have updated the battle plan since then. Um, I guess if we start with Victoria first and then go on to Edward, what was what was her role as a monarch? Was she particularly? Um, it sort of changes over time a bit. We're kind of we're into what you'd call a sort of period of constitutional monarchy. So we're no longer at the sort of Henry VIII right. stage where you've got absolute power and you can just have people's heads blocked off if uh, they start to irritate you uh, and you need a new spouse or child. Um, but she still has a certain amount of power and influence. So particularly sort of with the politicians, with the prime ministers, right. um, she'll be expressing her opinions quite forcefully. She can technically can okay. choose who the prime minister is, but that's really now dictated by elections. Um, so it's not a formal ruling as such, but still very influential and powerful. So she'd probably have, have had something to yeah, say. Yeah, she'd have had she'd have had opinions, and she was a very opinionated person, very stubborn. So once she'd got something into her head and she decided on it, then that's very much what she is going to pursue. What does she say about other wars? She's quite into war when it gets going. Well, She's quite an enthusiast uh, for the war. She gets very excited about it. But I mean, could she say, well, "I I don't like." the um brazilians <laughs> go and have a go at them or could conversely could she say stop fighting uh, she Russians? could say it uh but she would i suppose technically she could order it but realistically she can just say it and hope that the prime minister will do what she says but so that's okay. is that that's like now only um yes. she wouldn't actually say it so there's just like a level of not <laughs> sorry Sorry, this is an no, 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 this is these are the questions that I'm asking too, so please ask them. Oh dear, I'm the expert. Um <laughs> so it's actually just she's there's there's just a bit of like there's a, a gagging order on the monarchy now that there wasn't then. Yeah, and as I say, I think Elizabeth the second probably I mean she'd ask pertinent questions about things and she might give a bit of opinion, but I don't think she would be as forceful as to say this is complete nonsense. Whereas I think when Victoria and Gladstone were sat opposite each other, I don't think Gladstone was left in any doubt if Victoria didn't agree with something he was doing. I don't know if it's more or less reassuring that the, <laughs> the Queen we have now would refuse to comment on Martians <laughs> invading. Yeah. There was loads of conquest during these guys, um, their reigns. So 
clearly they weren't against like violence mm. they weren't completely pacifist but i wonder i guess it's i mean that's part of the book isn't it that it's such a strange idea for britain itself to be invaded around this time yeah because there's a lot of paranoia sort of early 20th century end of the 19th century about germany as a rising military power right and you right. get sort of things like riddle in the sands is it this sort of idea of like germans sort of secretly coming over to try and open up an invasion or stuff so there's a lot of fears of that in britain where previously sure. they would say it we've not been invaded since 1066 which is sort of true sort of not quite true um right, right, and thus right. this is great pride at britain not being able to be invaded so yeah the idea of martians suddenly turning up would be a bit of a shock to the system absolutely well i mean at the best even if they're friendly yeah uh, yeah <laughs> yeah at any time really but um, so what about what about if, when we get into the edwardian period how was what was Edward like in relation to that? Um, he doesn't have um, quite as much. I mean, he's not there for as long. Obviously, Victoria's there for over sixty years as queen, whereas Edward's um, not quite ten years as king. Yeah, I mean, both him and Victoria are quite. They're sort of unusually um, forward-thinking, like in terms of, sort of race relations and stuff like that. Neither of them are racist, and they sort of quite abhor sort of use of racist language. They're quite oh. protective of uh, the people in their empire. Yeah. So they sort of view it as a kind of a paternalistic thing. They thinking oh we've got all these nations that we're looking after they're all part of our family so they don't see it as being sort of alexander the great rampaging across half of the world and conquering it through military might they sort of think well we're just bringing everybody under the happy happy flag of britain because right. I, I and keeping them all safe yeah i guess they're they were thinking more of it's that it's that narrative of them going over and sort of educating and saving which is quite problematic, but back then was the benevolent way to go about it, I suppose. Yeah, that's what they would have thought. So they wouldn't have been sort of very ardently militaristic in terms of conquering okay. other people. Right, right, right. Even though that's technically what they were yeah. doing. Is that is us or the French? Is probably all they're yeah. thinking. Yeah. Can't have the French have it? Goodness sake. So I guess what was was there much much homeland defence around this time? Yeah. So no. So there was, certainly wasn't any until I say that bit yeah. of paranoia about germany which wasn't i think realistic in terms of actually them invading at that point um yeah there wasn't really any threat to mainland britain they don't even actually have that many conflicts with the other countries in europe i think under victoria's reign it's only the crimean war um, which is sort of obviously over in crimea and fighting with russia otherwise it's all india africa parts of asia there's nothing that's actually really threatening britain at home right sure We've got the home fleet, haven't we? For yeah, and they're completely the dominant. The, the navy is dominant. It's the most powerful navy in the world, so they obviously can control the channel. Other than the Martians, nobody's able to come over <laughs> in the air right. to invade. Yeah. Mind you, if it's the area we're talking about, you could get some of those ships up the Thames, and they'd probably sort it out of it. Well, yeah, if the Vikings had been around, they'd have been straight <laughs> up those <laughs> rivers, wouldn't they? We could have. So, well, they've got HMS. What's it called up there? <laughs> HMS um, Belfast. Sure. We could have got one of our dreadnoughts at the time up and uh, pummeling woking i mean it would have been a bad move strategically when the martians invade for the navy to just start barraging <laughs> their own cities well i don't know um if you know you can't destroy what isn't there right that's uh take it out take the control do a, a sort of sci- psyops yeah. thing that's you take true. it out of their hands maybe you'll disempower them that's what what Robert the Bruce did actually when he uh, has to take Scotland back from the English they just take various areas and then just waste the entire countryside like a 
of their own country, but it means that the English can't yeah. feed themselves and all that sort of stuff. There uh, you go. I'm just Robert the Bruce. Which which monarch do you think would have been best at dealing with a Martian invasion? I think the thing for Edward the Seventh is he was sort of quite notorious for his what you might call his sex capades. Right, okay. He was quite into his uh, sort of adult entertainment. So his first reaction would probably be to try to mate with it. Okay. Fair <laughs> he was sort of known as Bonking Bertie and Edward the Caresser were a couple of his nicknames. Right. <laughs> but otherwise, he had a bit of a tendency to kind of to die just before. Well, attempt, I mean, he did it once, to be fair, as a tendency. But and you don't live that down. Um, he dies when stuff's about to go down, really. So, like, he, there's a constitutional crisis going on with a, a budget okay. between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And then it's four years before the First World War. So, he really just has sort of a decade of happy living and peace and tranquility and bathroom antics with french uh, courtesans okay. and then pops his clogs and leaves it for somebody else to deal with so i guess maybe victoria is the one that's actually got a track record of seeing through sure. major conflicts which is what edward doesn't have because of the whole dying thing yeah, which would get in the way i sort of see those two as um one great big life of uh, the british empire where victoria did well she got other people to do the actual work and then Edward managed to live the retirement right, sure, sure. of nothing really yeah. going on, <laughs> just having uh, fun. And then he died, and with it starts the first cracks in the empire with the First World War. Yeah. Although, you know, arguably they're bigger afterwards. <laughs> but Victoria is very strong on stuff. When the wars uh, during her reign are there, she's really she's a strong figure on it. So there was time in the Boer War when Britain has suffered a few defeats. This is right at the end of her. Right, but I can't. What what year is War of the Worlds written? Um, eighteen ninety seven. All published. So them. I think he was. I think he was influenced mm. by the Boer Wars. Um, I know his his brother went over to South Africa, um, and I think was affected in some way by by the Boer War stuff that was happening. Mm. So and it starts badly for Britain again. This is one where they would have expected to win very very right. easily, and then they suffer these quite humiliating defeats early on. Uh, so when the Prime Minister Balfour was quite dispirited about how everything was going, um, Victoria told him that to please understand that there is no one depressed in this house. We are not interested in the possibilities of defeat. They do not exist. <laughs> so once the war started, once the Martians have come over, yeah. Victoria's not going to roll over. Right, okay. And she knitted, um, uh, did she knit hats for kids or something? Uh, no, for the soldiers. Oh, yeah. That makes more usefully but... for a war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she uh, knitted them uh, socks, gloves, mitten, uh, hats, and sent bars of chocolate. Oh, that's nice. It's a nice thing to do for your soldiers. I yeah. mean, it's the least you can do, really, isn't it? <laughs> give them a hat. The, monarch, the monarchy is sort of not mentioned at all. Like, Queen Victoria, I suppose part of the part of the writing for it is there's no specifics of monarch action or the monarchy in here. And I guess that's probably to be expected because it would be the, the government more having a role if anyone was to you know it's not like queen victoria would be coming out of buckingham palace with a baseball bat <laughs> on on horseback actually how would she choose to yeah, fight it because yeah. i've seen pictures of her with a rifle shooting a rifle but she was she into hunting because i can't imagine her hunting she's more um complaining and writing in a diary type she did do a lot of complaining and writing in a diary i think it was testing the rifling or something and she could hit a Target 200 yards away. At least she's bringing <laughs> something to the table. You know, she's oh, she's contributing something, and that is being a sure shot. Um, 
Yeah, she can be our marksman. <laughs> she'll cover the retreat. Everyone else gets to Paris and Victoria will just pick them off. Yeah, she won't be seen dead in Paris. Whereas Edward the Seventh, he'd be, I mean, that's probably <laughs> yeah, the exactly. He'd have the first be hour. Yeah. He'd be on the boat, the first boat going over, wouldn't he? Maybe saying, God, you managed to get away from the Martians. Martians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, credit to, credit to Edward for choosing to make love rather than war first off. Um, but um, Ali and Graham, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, please, can you let people know about, about Rex Factor, about where they can find you, about where they can, where they can listen and all of that stuff? Yeah, so uh, if you... Basically, any podcast provider, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use, if you just search for Rex Factor, uh, then you'll find us. We're also on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod and uh, the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for having us. And while I am engaged in this description, I may add in this place certain further details which, although they were not all evident to us at the time, will enable the reader who is unacquainted with them to form a clearer picture of these offensive creatures. In three other points, their physiology differed strangely from ours. Their organisms did not sleep, any more than the heart of man sleeps. Since they had no extensive muscular mechanism to recuperate, that periodical extinction was unknown to them. They had little or no sense of fatigue, it would seem. On Earth, they could never have moved without effort. Yet even to the last, they kept in action. In 24 hours, they did 24 hours of work, as even on Earth is perhaps the case with the ants. In the next place, wonderful as it seems in a sexual world, the Martians are absolutely without sex. And therefore, without any of the tumultuous emotions that arise from that difference among men. A young Martian, there can now be no dispute, was really born upon Earth during the war, and it was found attached to its parent, partially budded off, just as young lily bulbs bud off, or like the young animals in the freshwater polyp. In man, in all higher terrestrial animal, such a method of increase has disappeared, but even on this earth it was certainly the primitive method. Among the lower animals, up even to those first cousins of the vertebrated animals, the tunicates, the two processes occur side by side. But finally, the sexual method superseded its competitor altogether. On Mars, however, just the reverse has apparently been the case. It is worthy of remark that a certain speculative writer of quasi-scientific repute, writing long before the Martian invasion, did forecast for man a final structure not unlike the actual Martian condition. His prophecy, I remember, appeared in November or December 1893, in a long defunct publication, the Palmal Budget, and I recall a caricature of it in a pre-Martian periodical called Punch. He pointed out, writing in a foolish, facetious tone, that the perfection of mechanical appliances must ultimately supersede limbs. The perfection of chemical devices, digestion, that such organs as hair, external nose, teeth, ears and chin were no longer essential parts of the human being, and that the tendency of natural selection would lie in the direction of their steady diminution, would lie in the direction of their steady diminution through the coming ages. The brain alone remained a cardinal necessity. Only one other part of the body had a strong case for survival, and that was the hand, the teacher and agent of the brain. While the rest of the body dwindled, the hands would grow larger.
I just wanted to dive in at this point and say that that uh, certain speculative writer of quasi-scientific repute, uh, it's actually an article written by H.G. Wells a few years before War of the Worlds was published. It's, uh, <laughs> and when you see the picture of it, it is like, it's, it's something. So I had a little look to find like what what article was published at that time, and it's a, it's called the Man of the Year Million. So you can you can go and have a look at this if you want. Um, and it, the the but the picture is nuts. It's like a big head with like an ass. He's got his ass in the air. Uh, the, the legs are tied up. Um, he's wearing he's like wearing little shorts. It's it's it's. I mean I can't do it. I can't do it justice. I can't do the picture justice. It's it's it's. Mad. Like, if you imagine that that's sort of what he thought the Martians look a bit like, it's it's something. It's something alright. But you can read the whole article um, if you want. Um, if not, it's basically just you, what what he said there. But he's having a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, cross-promotion, the cheeky bugger. And who can, who can blame him, you know? Who can blame him? It's his book. He can do what he wants. There is many a true word written in jest. And here in the Martians we have beyond dispute the actual accomplishment of such a suppression of the animal side of the organism by the intelligence. To me it is quite credible that the Martians may be descended from beings not unlike ourselves, by a gradual development of brain and hands, the latter giving rise to the two bunches of delicate tentacles at last, at the expense of the rest of the body. Without the body the brain would, of course, become a mere selfish intelligence, without any of the emotional substratum of the human being. The last salient point in which the systems of these creatures differed from ours was in what one might have thought a very trivial particular. Microorganisms, which cause so much disease and pain on Earth, have either never appeared upon Mars or Martian sanitary science eliminated them ages ago. A hundred diseases, all the fevers and contagions of human life, consumption, cancers, Tumours and such morbidities never enter the scheme of their life. And speaking of the differences between the life on Mars and terrestrial life, I may allude here to the curious suggestions of the red weed. Apparently the vegetable kingdom in Mars, instead of having green for the dominant colour, is of a vivid blood-red tint. At any rate, the seeds which the Martians, intentionally or accidentally, brought with them gave rise in all cases to red-coloured growths. Only that known popularly as the red weed, however, gained any footing in competition with terrestrial forms. The red creeper was quite a transitory growth, and few people have seen it growing. For a time, however, the red weed grew with astonishing vigour and luxuriance. It spread up the sides of the pit by the third or fourth day of our imprisonment, and in its cactus-like branches formed a carmine fringe to the edges of our triangular window. And afterwards I found it broadcast throughout the country, and especially wherever there was a stream of water. The Martians had what appeared to be an auditory organ, a single round drum at the back of the head body, and eyes with a visual range not very different from ours except that, according to Phillips, blue and violet were as black to them. It is commonly supposed that they communicated by sounds and tentacular gesticulation. This is asserted, for instance, in the able but hastily compiled pamphlet, written evidently by someone not an eyewitness of the Martian actions, to which I have already alluded, and which, so far, have been the chief source of information concerning them. Now, no surviving human being saw so much of the Martians in action as I did. I take no credit to myself for such an accident, but the fact is so and I assert that I watched them closely time after time, and that I have seen four, 
five, and once six of them sluggishly performing the most elaborately complicated operations, together without either sound or gesture. Alright, so we're finally sort of getting a reason why the narrator is the one telling us this story. Like, you know, is he, is he the best person qualified for this job? No. Is he the bravest person in the Martian war? No. Is he the most entertaining person to tell this story? No. But was he the only one that survived and seemed to have got most of an eyeful of a Martian? Yes. Yes, that, that is why he's doing this. And I think that kind of gives this uh, a bit, bit more colour to this story and a bit more sophistication, which Wells should get some... I think Wells deserves some credit for it, because, you know, he's not a particularly likeable character, but that's kind of the point of him, right? He's just meant to be like this this idiot out of his depth, and that's, I guess, he's a standing metaphor for Earth there. Maybe we'll do a metaphor alert. i tell you what, let, let's crack a metaphor alert here. That's been a while, hasn't it? Metaphor alert. Metaphor alert. There we go, it's been a while since we've had that, hasn't it? That's quite nice to get that back in there. Welcome back to series two. Their peculiar hooting invariably preceded feeding. It had no modulation and was, I believe, in no sense a signal, but merely the expiration of air preparatory to the suctional operation. I have a certain claim to at least an elementary knowledge of psychology. And in this matter I'm convinced, as firmly as I'm convinced of anything, that the Martians interchange thoughts without any physical intermediation. And I have been convinced of this in spite of strong preconceptions. Before the Martian invasion, as an occasional reader here or there may remember, I had written with some little vehemence against the telepathic theory. I mean, let's just take a minute right now to appreciate just how badass the Martians sound, right? They're like floating heads, like floating big octopus psychic vampires. And it is great, isn't it? Like, you know. Psychic vampires is cool, but then you've got like a like a big octopus as well. Like, ooh, creepy, creepy psychic octopus vampire. The Martians wore no clothing. Their conceptions of ornament and decorum were necessarily different from ours. And not only were they evidently much less sensible of changes of temperature than we are, but changes of pressure do not seem to have affected their health at all seriously. Yet though they wore no clothing, it was in the other artificial additions to their bodily resources that their great superiority over man lay. We men, with our bicycles and road skates, our lilienthal soaring machines, our guns and sticks and so forth, are just the beginning of the evolution that the Martians have worked out. So I just wanted to jump in with the uh, lilienthal soaring machines bit. That uh, is a reference to, at the time he was writing, this... Uh, this German inventor called uh, Carl Wilhelm Otto Lilienthal, or Otto Lilienthal. So he was a big pioneer of aviation. He became known as the Flying Man. That's what the first line of Wikipedia says. But he's sort of like the Wright Brothers, only before the Wright Brothers, and there wasn't a motor on it. So, you know, they look a bit fantastical. They're, they're cool. They're very cool. They're like these sort of, um, you know, you know, the idea of, of those like Da Vinci illustrations with the big the big wings and that that's what he did he he was the person who turned those into a reality so i mean he's quite cool but definitely if you're comparing the flight of of, of him on earth to the to the flight that the martians have succeeded it's not not the same is it not the same but you know there we go just coloring the uh coloring the old uh, canvas of your brain for you they have become practically mere brains wearing different bodies according to their needs, just as men wear suits of clothes and take a bicycle in a hurry or an umbrella in the wet. 
and of their appliances, perhaps nothing is more wonderful to a man than the curious fact that what is the dominant feature of almost all human devices and mechanism is absent. The wheel is absent. Among all the things they brought to earth, there is no trace or suggestion of their use of wheels. One would have at least expected it in locomotion. And in this connection it is curious to remark that even on this earth nature has never hit upon the wheel, or has preferred other expedients to its development. Or has preferred other expedients to its development. I mean big wheel talk from Wells here. Big wheel lad. I'm here for it. The wheel, so they may be big old floating psychic heads with no clothes, only one, uh, one big drum here on the back of its noggin, but if you think they're all that, well, guess what? They got no wheels, so, uh, good luck rolling with the punches. <laughs> Get it wrong. Sorry. Anyway, it's just, it's, it, of, all, of all the things to decide not to give them, it's quite a, you know, the, we, the wheel. That's what they don't get. Ha! You can take our freedom, but you'll never take our wheels. I mean, the narrator would probably be well up for a world without wheels, because it means he doesn't have a bike anymore. And not only did the Martians either not know of, which is incredible, or abstain from, the wheel, but in their apparatus, singularly little use is made of the fixed pivot or relatively fixed pivot. With circular motion, they're about confined to one plane. Almost all the joints of the machinery present a complicated system of sliding parts moving over small but beautifully curved friction bearings. And while upon this matter of detail, it is remarkable that the long leverages of their machines are in most cases actuated by a sort of sham musculature of the discs in an elastic sheath, these discs become polarised and drawn closely and powerfully together when traversed by a current of electricity. I can't figure out, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to take on there. You can go back and listen again if you want to try and get an idea of it. Just no wheels. Just, that's what I'd take from it. There's no wheels, it works differently. They're aliens. Get over it. In this way, the curious parallelism to animal motions, which was so striking and disturbing to the human beholder, was attained. Such quasi-muscles abounded in the crab-like handling machine, which, on my first peeping out of the slit, I watched unpacking the cylinder. It seemed infinitely more alive than the actual Martians lying beyond it in the sunset light. Panting, stirring ineffectual tentacles, and moving feebly after their vast journey across space. While I was still watching their sluggish motions in the sunlight, and noting each strange detail of their form, the curate reminded me of his presence by pulling violently at my arm. I turned to a scowling face and silent, eloquent lips. He wanted the slit, which permitted only one of us to peep through, and so I had to forgo watching them for a time while he enjoyed that privilege. Ugh, hate it when you have to share! When I looked again, the busy handling machine had already put together several of the pieces of apparatus it had taken out of the cylinder into a shape having an unmistakable likeness to its own, and down on the left a busy little digging mechanism had come into view, emitting jets of green vapour and working its way round the pit, excavating and embanking in a methodical and discriminating manner. This it was which had caused the regular beating noise and the rhythmic shocks that had kept our ruinous refuge quivering. It piped and whistled as it worked. So far as I could see, the thing was without a directing Martian at all. What are they building? Such intrigue, such questions, will we find out? 
I'm a bloody, I bloody hope so. Imagine if they just left it. I mean, what would that? Why would he do that? Seems like he's deliberately set. Look, we're gonna find. Don't worry about it. That's that's that. Don't worry about it. We'll find out in a couple of weeks when we get chapter three. The days of imprisonment. So it, it sounds like they're not going anywhere for a bit. At least next chapter. Uh, thank you so much for listening, guys. Please. Please subscribe to the podcast, and also, if you want to give it a share on social media and that, you can tag me in, at Eddie Hurst, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everywhere you go. Also, I'd like to this episode say a big thank you to Jason Cook, who's made some amazing uh, techno synthy tracks. He, he's a friend of mine who does a lot of analog synthesizer stuff, and I, I think it's amazing what you can do with the modular synths and uh, he also runs the legendary open mic night in manchester comedy balloon it's award-winning uh, which is really something for an open mic that is coming back into the real world on the 25th of august at the ape and apple in manchester why not go down if you want to see some comedians uh, shaking off some rust uh, some people maybe who have made uh, resolutions after lockdown to come to come and perform so uh, you know it was a real treat that he was uh, keen to make some some backing so uh, be sure to keep an ear out because this is not the last you've heard of him a lot of keeping an ear out in this intro and outro but hey just keep your ears out i mean i don't don't keep them in that sounds uncomfortable Ugh, horrible image anyway see you in a couple of weeks for chapter three the days of imprisonment who and what is angel and me is it a detective story maybe it is maybe it isn't and what about spacecraft lasers. Are you going to fit in that old suit? Does it have complex and convoluted crime elements? Girl, I really, really need a decent coffee. Why is that pub run by a Russian? You're obviously new to town then. Is there explosive ranting? Here goes. And what about those drag queens? Oh, leather. So manly and strong. Well, you're only going to know if you listen to it, ain't you?